welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is Phil. When JF and I record these shows, we usually chat about this or that until we warm to the day's topic. That way we can sneak up on it, on its blind side, and take it by surprise. So our edited-down conversations often begin in medias res, for example, in this episode. So here are three things you need to know in advance. Number one. Rodney Asher is a documentarian who has filmed two features. The first was Room 237, which is a documentary about strange and obsessive fan theories of that strange and obsessive film, The Shining. Asher's next feature, The Nightmare, is about the terrifying phenomenon of sleep paralysis. Number two. The title of this episode is The Dark Eye, on the films of Rodney Asher. That title comes from a line in James Hillman's The Dream and the Underworld. Quote, Essential for working with what is unknown is an attitude of unknowing. This leaves room for the phenomenon itself to speak. It alone may keep us from delusions. Hence my stress upon two things, the dark eye that makes our brightness unsure, and careful precision to what is actually there. End quote. This passage gives you the key note of the conversation you were about to hear. Finally, number three. The Eric you hear J.F. mention is Eric Davis, who appears in our fourth episode. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Watch the films? Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. I've been on a uh, Rodney Asher marathon. Also reading some interviews with him and learning a little bit also about the guy who does his music, a guy named John Snipes, hmm. uh, who, because one of the things that attracted me to Rodney Asher's stuff is this very consistent look and feel and sound. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was like, he must be using the same musician for all of his films. You know, I watched The Nightmare first. Nightmare is the more recent of his two features. And then I watched Room 237 a little while later. The consistency of mood really struck me. Um, And, you know, consistency of sound as well. There's a nice pop quality to the music that makes... It makes his films more accessible, but also uh, just it just, like, creates the right mood for them. He uses music very well. I find that the way that... Asher makes his documentaries. I find a real affinity between that and the way he uses music and stuff with the Duffer Brothers and Stranger Things, and even in the, the his color correction and the way that I find just a lot of uh, affinity between those two projects, like Stranger Things and his general project, his films, and the electronic music. At least, yeah, I think it's pretty much electronic music that uh, Snipes creates for him. 
reminds me a little bit of the Stranger Things soundtrack. Yeah. Well, for one thing, Snipes uses a lot of analog synthesizers. Yeah, Moog and such. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, in Room 237, he is also using acoustic instruments. Um, the point stands, though. Yeah, the sound world is certainly reminiscent of Stranger Things. You know what else it's reminiscent of? And this apparently is not an accident. This is quite on purpose. Do you remember the show In Search Of? Nope, never saw it. Oh, dude, this show was made for you. Oh, I yeah. would almost... Oh, yeah. This You can find all of them on YouTube, I discovered this morning, which makes me very happy. This was my favorite show when I was a kid. Uh, so when I was about 8, 9, 10... This was my Friday evening. My sister and I would be driven across town to take a piano lesson. And then when we were done with the piano lesson, we were driving home. It was after dinner. We would stop by a Max Milk, and my sister and I could each buy a bag of chips, like a bag of junk food. And this was a big treat because we never got to eat junk food otherwise. We never had, like, soda or anything in our house, right? Right. And so I always bought a bag of Hostess Hickory Sticks, which I think you can still get in Canadian convenience stores. Well, it's a staple. That's right. <laughs> I'm imagining the Martell Pantry, just you open it up, and it's just <laughs> bags of Hickory Sticks. It's like the Overlook Hotel, but instead right. of Calumet baking soda cans, it's Hickory Sticks. Right. Uh, but we would go home with our bags of junk food and we would sit down in front of TV Ontario, which had this show that it ran called In Search Of. And it was Leonard Nimoy was the oh God, I remember this. voiceover narrator. And he had a great voice for spooky shit. And it was always about stuff like, do plants have feelings? Like it was all, all the 70s shit. Like they did a, a show on killer bees. Remember killer bees? Yep. It's like the world's slowest crisis. <laughs> like year by year, you'd be like, oh, they're, they're as far as northern Mexico. You should be getting to Texas any day now. And like, you know, a couple of years later, well, they're still stuck at the border. We yeah. we don't know what the problem is, really. And like by the time they finally got to the United States, they had crossbred with native bee populations so much that they had really relaxed. They'd become very American bees. Right. Lured by prosperity and the temptations of a consumer society, they gave up killing people and they moved uh, to the suburbs. You know, moved to the suburbs, yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, they would do shows on do plants have feelings or Bigfoot or UFO abductions. And my sister always liked to joke that they can make the show about anything. They can make a show about shoes and you would be scared shitless of shoes by the end of the show just because of the way well, first of all, Nimoy's narration made everything sound super heavy, but also the music, which had a lot of vintage synths, and mm -hmm. the style of scoring in In Search Of is really similar. It's this great sound for creepy weirdness, and apparently that was something that both Snipes and Asher were really down with. Like, Asher has said in interviews that In Search Of was a big influence on his documentary style, and uh, certainly that was a sound they were going for. And certainly the expressive effect of that show, they were definitely going for in the particular union of image and sound. Like the way you have a narration stitched together from like clips of things. A lot of them, you know, kind of public domain-ish images. 
undergirded by this kind of vintage synth sound that was always kind of drony and ominous where you have very long expanses where nothing much is happening you might just have a single bass note i don't know like for however long you need it for a minute and a half or something with a special micro syringe drone semen is delicately drawn away meanwhile an anesthetized killer queen bee is prepared for artificial insemination the syringe containing semen from the drone is inched into position. Slowly, the captive queen is inseminated. Her genetic character is thus deliberately altered by science. And that's just how they did it, fast and cheap. But it also creates just this terrific sound. It almost reminds me of something that you said in a previous podcast that we did philip k dick's line that the new appears first in the trash stratum right and it's sort of like finding this avowedly trash stratum thing in search of and yet from the exigencies of having to shoot fast and cheap you get this sound that becomes this great sound of weird creepiness so he was really influenced by in search of that's interesting because i remember this show vaguely i remember leonard nimoy's voice but I don't recall the show. I'll have to go check it out. But it seems to me that what it was doing, this show, was engaging in a uh, in, in weirding phenomena. Yep, exactly. It was taking things and weirding them. Well, So weirding them means kind of like dislodging them from the, the safe structures of the known and restoring things to their essential weirdness. Yeah, like taking, taking things out of the consensus trends. Right, exactly. Plants are fucking weird. Like plants are strange things if you look at them from the right angle, you know, and um, that's kind of like really the essence of what Asher's doing, what I love about his films. Um, I would nominate him, in fact, as a modern master of the weird. He's you definitely, know, he's yeah, not, yeah. Or or he's not a, a master of like the weird story, like we would say that M.R. James or Arthur Machen are masters of the weird story or Thomas Ligotti. It's the weird documentary, and I don't know if there's enough entries in that genre for it even to be a genre, but if it exists, he's the master of it. There, there is a, like a, a tradition of weirdness in documentary filmmaking, but there's something about the way Asher does it that's new, or at least he's bringing in... You know, his 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 use of dramatic reenactments is really interesting to me. I think he took that cue from Errol Morris, whose documentary, The Thin Blue Line from the 80s, was oh, yeah. a revolutionary documentary where Errol Morris uses dramatic reenactment, which at the time was something you saw on kind of cheap TV shows like Unsolved Mysteries and that sort of thing. But he, the way he used it was that he, he replays the same memories over and over again but then changes them as he gets more information or things change or different like conflicting accounts are both dramatized you know i saw this i saw this back in the 80s right so my memories of it are really vague but yeah you're right that's what he does and and it's on the black set just like uh, asher does like the dramatic reenactment is a really 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 interesting technique within the, the documentary tradition and i think what asher does with it is really interesting basically he's trying to restore certain things to the weird so for in the nightmare he's trying he's taking sleep paralysis 
So it's a, the nightmare is a documentary about sleep paralysis, which we talked about in our introductory episode. Sleep paralysis being a f- you know a very widespread phenomenon where people wake up in the middle of the night and feel there's a presence in the room, and the, that presence often takes the form of a shadowy figure or a creature that climbs on top of them and, and tries to like suffocate them. And this happens. And usually all- they can't move. Right, you, you're paralyzed. They're powerless and, yeah. to resist. Or... H- hence the name, yeah. So in, in The Nightmare, Asher just basically interviews people who've suffered from, you know, particularly serious cases of sleep paralysis and then reconstructs their stories, what they experience, without trying to explain it, without trying to, you know, translate it into some kind of uh, what James Hillman would call day world language, like rational he doesn't try to rationalize them he just shows them the way that they were experienced and he does this through dramatic reenactment and what's so interesting about this technique to me is that dramatic reenactment is an attempt to get to reality through the subjective dramatic reenactments are almost always first person accounts that are played out visually so there's an attempt to turn the subjective into the objective to like go back into the memory of one person and pull out an event, which you can look at from different sides. You can look at it like an object. It's not a subjective impression anymore. It's like a thing in itself that you can, you can experience. So that's interesting because by using that technique in the context of a documentary about sleep paralysis, you get to really isolate the event that sleep paralysis is and you don't need to um, try to fit it into some kind of other schema, you know, try to like explain it away. You can just look at it for what it is and reserve judgment, you know, and that's what makes it weird because the, the weird, as we've said, isn't things that, you know, the weird isn't the strange. It's not just Halloween shit. Right. The weird is what doesn't fit our schema. You know, what doesn't fit yeah. the kind of structures we construct to know the world. The weird is what escapes it. And, his films, whether it's Room 237, which is about Kubrick's The Shining or The Nightmare or that early one. Did you watch it? Uh, the S from Hell? Yeah, I did. Yeah. All of these films are basically taking things that you might think you know. And by the end of the film, you realize that you actually don't really know them at all. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is, in fact, the very reason why I am happy to call Asher a modern master of the weird. I grant that my frame of reference is much, much narrower because I don't know that much about contemporary documentaries, certainly not to the degree that you do. But it's the unrationalized quality of all of his work that really commends itself as kind of um, something like weird fiction. The great anthology of weird fiction is this Tor anthology that's just called The Weird. And it has a foreword, or for weird. <laughs> as it is styled, uh, by Michael Moorcock, an SF writer who did the, like the Jerry Cornelius books and a very prolific writer. Anyway, he thinks for a couple of pages about like what the weird story is and talks a bit about its history. And what he calls it unrationalized fiction. Right. And he's pointing out that in the very early years, you know, in the, the public domain years, the, the years of people like M.R. James and Lord Dasani and, you know, of, of course, Lovecraft and a number of others. Bruno Schultz is another mm. one. You say, well, what are, what's, what genre are they playing? And some of them are playing things that would have been understood as horror fiction. Yeah, um, gothic, some of ghost them are, story. Yeah, ghost stories like M.R. James. But some of them, they're not 
ghost stories. They're not gothic. They're not, you know, stories of terror or horror. Uh, Lord Dunsany's, um, what is it, Gods of Pelagia or What's the title of that book? Pagana, I believe. Pagana. Yes, that's right. Which I just started reading a few chapters of the other day. And that's not any of that stuff. But it's weird. Why is it weird? Because there's no rationalization. There's no point where some authoritative narrative voice steps in and says, well, what was really going on all the time is blah. Like if you read Hound of the Baskervilles by Conan Doyle, the great Sherlock Holmes novel, which has been made into movies a number of times, you know, there's this horrible spectral beast that's haunting the moors. And it turns out that, you know, it was like a normal dog, just a really big dog that had been treated with phosphorus or some shit to make it glow in the dark. I don't know. I don't remember all the rationalizations, but the point is everything that seemed supernatural at the beginning is explained away by the end, and this is a really, really common pattern. This is the common pattern of uh, stories of supernatural fiction in the 19th century. But Moorcock's point is that it's when authors, whether they're coming at it from a horror direction or they're surrealists or expressionists or you know whatever ism you want to slot them into, they want to give you a story and they don't want to explain it. They don't want to have that moment of narrative authority where you step aside from the the story and you reveal what's really happening. There is no really in a weird story. There's just the experience of the people who are undergoing whatever's happening in the story. And this is exactly the thing with Asher's films. In fact, if you make the mistake of reading like Amazon reviews of his films, it's never a good idea to read Amazon reviews. It'll just make you hate humanity. But they're instructive in the case of his films because like his films get like the average for both Room 237 and The Nightmare is like three stars or some shit, which is really, which, you know, in Amazon world isn't good, right? And then you start looking at all that negative reviews and it's all these dummies who are like, for example, in The Nightmare are like, well, it's, I guess it's okay, but, you know, he never has a scientist come out and tell us what's really happening. Right. You know, all these people are just really bothered by the fact that there's some genuinely weird things, which we'll get into later, some weird things that happen that can't really be explained within the narrow medicalized frame of sleep paralysis. And Asher is content to just let the stories be, just let the narrator speak for themselves and not try to explain or rationalize their experience. And people just can't stand this. It drives people crazy, which makes me think that the current fad for all things weird is mostly horseshit. People think that they want the weird, but what they really want is Halloween. People really actually, for the most part, don't want things to remain unresolved. They want something like a like a roller coaster ride where, yeah, you're going to be very anxious for a certain period of time, but then the roller coaster ride ends and you get off and you're like, whoo, I made it. Yeah. But I, I think there are uh, good reasons. There are good reasons for that though. Like, but like, the thing is, yeah. but the thing is that to me, the weird is like, you never really get off the ride or you can never be sure if you're on the ride or not. Right. Like but, the film, the nightmare ends and you're like, well, I didn't really get any closure there. And, and then you just keep on not having closure. Like in yeah, a sense, you're still on the hook. It's unsettling. And there are really good reasons why people react that way. Because they don't like to be unsettled, especially not when they want to be entertained. And maybe that's one of the reasons why almost no one has ever gotten rich on the weird. 
with a, a few exceptions, David Lynch maybe. But uh, yeah, there is a weird fad right now. And there's a certain, I think there's a certain, people are so fed up with the way things are in this world that they're kind of like looking for anything. Um, yeah. And they're willing to entertain weird ideas because, and, and the other thing is it's something that Eric, Because all the normal ones have failed us. Right, exactly, are, are failing us. And, and one thing Eric said that was interesting was that we're confronted today with a weirder reality. So even though the culture seems to be adverse to the weird uh, as a, we don't, we don't have those subcultures all over the place that we're looking for the weird as much. Um, we're all looking at screens. At the same time, we're confronted with a weirder and weirder objective reality out there through climate change and hyper objects and all that stuff. So, so right. there's a, we're being forced into it. What I love about weird authors and weird artists, people like Rodney Asher, is that they are willing to embrace human unknowing. That's a scary thing, to entertain the possibility that the world may be fundamentally unknowable and to explore that as an idea. There's a really awesome passage here from James Hillman's The Dream and the Underworld that I wanted to read to you and get your thoughts on. Yeah. James Hillman is a psychoanalyst who was a Jungian, but also an anti-Jungian. He developed a school of psychoanalysis that he called archetypal psychology. In, in this book, The Dream in the Underworld, he writes, Both Freud and Jung attempted with their works to give us a positive knowledge of the psyche. In their own and different ways, they contributed to science, to knowing something about dreams, their nature, structure, dynamics, symbols, language, intentions, internal mechanisms, meanings. In contrast, this book attempts to elaborate an attitude toward dreams in which any positive knowledge would be a daylight move, wronging the dream and wronging the soul. When we believe we know the invisible, we begin on a ruinous course. We are now reaping the ignorant delusions of the last century's positive knowledge of nature, which loves to hide. We thought we knew invisibles like the atom, the cell, and the gene, and off we went, riding the horse of hubris, and now there may be no road back. If we believe in a positive knowledge of the dream or of the psyche, are we not riding the same horse on that same ruinous course? And a century late, anachronistically, approaching the psyche with attitudes that have already been invalidated in regard to nature. And this is a good sentence here. He says, Essential for working with what is unknown is an attitude of unknowing. This leaves room for the phenomenon itself to speak. It alone may keep us from delusions. Hence my stress upon two things, the dark eye that makes our brightness unsure, and careful precision in regard to what is actually there, a method that Lopez Pedraza felicitously calls sticking to the image. And that's ex I think that's a great description of what Asher's doing in The Nightmare and Room 237, where there's a ontological kind of uh, validation of the image in itself. The image in the, in the, not in the image in the sense of a representation, but the image in the sense of a phenomenal apparition, something that happens and that leaves something in you. In order to know this thing, you can't just throw concepts on top of it and try to like contain it, like try to pin it down like a butterfly. You have to just watch it. You have to just attend to it, look at it from different angles and let it speak to you. And that's, that's what Asher does with sleep paralysis in the nightmare. Absolutely. And it's what he demonstrates as an artistic practice or as the kind of the point of, of the artwork in uh, Room 237, which looks at different ways of, of interpreting The Shining. So, yeah, so I just thought that was a, a helpful passage for accessing the, 
the hermeneutics of the weird, you know? Absolutely. I love that passage. That's well chosen. And the particular line, the dark eye that makes our brightness unsure. Mm-hmm. That is in a nutshell, I think, what Asher is about. He is the dark eye that makes our brightness unsure. Yeah. And the funny thing is that the weird, it's sort of like what my sister said about how In Search Of could make your shoe rack scary as hell. You know, everything becomes a little scary when we encounter the dark eye that makes our brightness unsure, when when our brightness becomes unsure. I watched Room 237 with my kids, and there's one particular interpreter of The Shining who has some really crazy ideas. And the first time we find ourselves really kind of taking us side road to crazyville my daughter and i looked at one another with wild surmise and and she said you know i think this movie's actually scarier than the shining which i thought was kind of funny and i kind of know what she means because there's a kind of uneasiness in watching room 237 it's the strangest kind of horror there's nothing horrible that happens in front of us there's nothing scary. If I were to tell you, well, yeah, I watched this movie. It kind of weirded me out. Well, what was, what weirded you out about it? I couldn't really even tell you, except that even when you've got what amounts to a documentary about interpretation, which is actually a very abstract thing to want to do, it still becomes scary because we don't have that authoritative voice telling us at any point what this means. We're just thrust into the experience to make of it what we will we're given conflicting different takes on the images that are passing before our eyes like the whole film is made out of footage from the shining and other kubrick films Uh, there's hardly anything else in the film so you're watching scenes from the shining often with no sound and you're hearing these i think there are five people these people are first of all are all absolutely obsessed with the shining and secondly, they have crazy theories about what the film's actually about. And they each seem to be very convinced that they have the key to The Shining. So they're, they're each approaching the film in a day world way, according to Hillman's criteria, right? They're trying to figure out what this film's really about. I've had actually uh, interactions with uh, Jay Widener, the, the subject in the, in the documentary who believes that The Shining was Kubrick's mea culpa for having faked the moon landing. Oh, that's the guy I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, by far the most out there of all of the interpreters. Yeah, and I I think it's his theory is absolutely patently absurd, right? At the same time as you know anything's possible, you know, like I'm not going to say he's wrong. I I just think it's it's nuts. And some of the other theories, for example, Bill Blakemore, the journalist who believes the film is about uh, the genocide of the Native Americans, I think he's right on. I think that's actually what Kubrick was doing one one of the things Kubrick was doing I think that theory is absolutely 100% legit but either way it doesn't fucking matter that's the whole point with Asher it's like it the the the, the artwork elicits interpretation calls for thought calls for the the digging the vertical digging into into affect to try to find one's way through the labyrinth you know just to stick with the symbology of the shining like the shining is in itself a labyrinth and once you enter into it, you're going to have to find your way out. You're going to have to figure out what you can do with this. You can, of course, just ignore it. It's always easy to just 
kind of banish a work of art and say, well, whatever, it's just what it is. I'm just going to go home now and forget about it. Or you can take its invitation and enter into it and try to find some kind of light in it, some kind of way through it. What, what Asher's doing in, in Room 237 is that he's showing us that the, the correctness of a particular theory about a film is probably the least important aspect of the theory. What's important is the thinking that film elicits. Only the weird image will really elicit thought. I believe that very strongly, that, that ultimately any good art is weird art. Rodney Asher recently made a pilot for a series on Shudder, but hasn't followed up with the other episodes of the series. So I'm hoping that this is still going to happen. This project is still um, alive. But uh, if you go to Shudder.com, you'll find one episode of a series called Primal Screen. Um, and, and that's screen with an N. Yes, screen with an N. And the conceit of the series is that he will interview people who were deeply affected by some horrific film image or film or scene or something that they saw when they were young and that really had a tremendous effect on their lives. And he's going to study the image and let those people describe how the experience unfolded. So the, the one episode that you can watch is about, I think it's three people talking about the aftermath of seeing as young children, the trailer for Attenborough's film uh, Magic with uh, Anthony Hopkins, which is a film about a ventriloquist with a basically just like a, a, a dummy that becomes the a, film, yeah the, it takes over his mind yeah or exactly or he Have experiences you, it as this autonomous intelligence that is kind of increasingly evil and encourages him to do evil things to murder people and and whatnot so these three people are talking about seeing the trailer and the trailer for um for magic was basically a, a ventriloquist dummy in close-up staring at the camera and reciting a, a very bizarre poem that ends with the line we are dead and then the puppet raises its eyes its eyes go white for a moment and then open again and then turn eerily towards the right and uh it, it is a, a genuinely creepy trailer again he's doing the same thing he does in the nightmare and in room 237 he just gets these people to talk about how this image affected them so it's a, it's a beautiful testament to the power of images and also an exploration of the theme of the living doll, the, the automaton, which is a trope of, of weird fiction and, and gothic fiction, going all the way back to the source, right? What are, were your impressions of this, of this short I film? thought it was great. And I hope that Shudder orders a bunch more episodes because I think, for one thing, it's a really great premise for a show. Every show, you're just going to find something that has traumatized people and try and dig out why that is. Which is continuous with that first short that he did, the the S from Hell. Yeah. And again, it shows this interest in a really almost radical shift towards a purely subjective approach to phenomena. He's not ever going to ask, like, oh, is that logo for Screen Gems, is it actually evil? No, he's just interested in talking to people to find out 
how they experienced it. And then his filmmaking, as he's actually said in interviews, his filmmaking then becomes an exercise in trying to give the viewer the feelings that people are expressing. But, you know, there, but there's, the, this, there's this thing that always happens with dreams, like get back to dreams, where you have just a crazy dream, maybe a very scary dream, and you wake up and you're like, oh, Jesus, oh, you know, what the fuck was that? And then you turn over to your spouse and you say, oh, my God, I had this crazy dream, and you try to explain it. And as you're explaining it, you can feel the reality of the terror beginning to ebb away because as you, narrow, as you narrate the events of it, the, it just baldly stated as a series of propositions. It's absurd. Well, I saw a porcupine wearing a bowler hat walking down the street. And what you realize when you're narrating it, when you just say porcupine wearing a bowler hat, you're like, oh shit, that's really stupid, isn't it? But what you can't convey in propositional language is the feeling, what that, that shudder of fear that you feel seeing something that just is wrong in some way. And mm. so Asher is trying to inject that feeling of wrongness into the narration. This is one way that reenactment thing goes from being this cheesy device used in, you know, unsolved mysteries or whatever, to something that has real power, is that, right. that by walking us through the trauma, uh, sometimes with a great deal of visual wit as well, I, I find myself laughing aloud at some of the transitions that he comes up with, but he manages to walk us deep into this into the fear fear of something that doesn't even make sense like there's no i don't understand why that s is supposed to be scary but when i'm watching the the short that he directed for it i can feel it i can feel the truth of that even though the truth of it is always going to remain elusive to language so phil's just just referred to Asher's, I think it was his first documentary in this style, which was a short nine-minute documentary you can watch on his website. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes about a logo for a subsidiary of Columbia Pictures back in the 60s called Screen Gems. And this uh, company would distribute various TV shows, including I Dream of Genie. Was that one of them? The Flintstones? Yeah, that's right. And the so, Flintstones. So, so when you watch those shows in the 60s, at the end, you'd have that little slate at the end showing you the, you know, the, the name Screen Jams and then the logo would appear and this bizarre uh, synth music would accompany the appearance of the logo. And it filled many children with terror, this logo. Um, contrary to you, Phil, when I saw the logo, I felt a shiver of fear. I think that there's something absolutely demonic about this logo. I don't know what it is, but... And I'd love to interview someone who's really skilled and like marketing and psychology like some real good graphic designer who could like help us figure out why it, it had that effect because i think that it is something that you can quantify to a certain extent so so he's in this documentary he's interviewing a few people who were terrified of this logo to the point where they would shut the tv off if they saw it you know or they would try to like they would hide when at the end of the show when the logo appeared What's interesting to me about Asher is that although he is, yes, interested in the subjective experience of his subjects, he always finds several subjects that agree on the on the quality of the image being uh, discussed. Yeah. So it's never just one person's, you know, neurotic obsession or monomania about one image. It's several people who had different but similar reactions to the same thing. Yeah. So it's either the as the Screen Gems logo, the film The Shining, Sleep Paralysis or the trailer for magic. 
in either case, there is, I think, a thick end of his wedge, so to speak, uh, where he's trying to figure out like, wow, this image has this power. It's not just subjective. There's something going on and it manifests subjectively through each person because we're talking about psychic events. So we're talking about events that manifest subjectively to people. At the same time, as I think he's trying to draw our attention to the innate, and I use the word technically, the innate magical power of images, that images work on us and can change your, our lives. Like in Primal Screen, we're talking about three people who, when they were you know, six or seven years old, saw a, a film trailer that basically affects them to this day. And I think we all have examples. In fact, I was curious to know if you had a primal screen moment of your own when you were a kid. Is there some image you saw that really affected you? Yes. And, okay, I'm glad you asked that question. When I was about five, my dad was on sabbatical and we were living in Toronto. And I was watching TV with my parents And I watched a film, and I have never been able to discover what the film was. So if there's some listener who's like, oh, I know what that is, please tell me. But it was a film that, at least in my jumbled recollection, was about some people who went to the moon. And they found inside the moon, like as one, basically like a hollow earth idea, like inside the moon, there is like the remains of a vanished civilization and there's monsters and there is a moment in that where it looks just like everything has been dead and silent for millennia, for eons. And there's this thing, it looks almost like a kind of like a robot dinosaur, And there's a moment where everything starts moving, where things start coming to life. And it's done in that kind of Ray Harryhausen style stop motion animation, like model animation. Uh, Mm -hmm. And everything has this kind of jerky quality that rather than looking crappy and cheap is absolutely terrifying, scared the shit out of me. And yet also fascinated me because there was just some the quality of the unknown uh, is such a deeply, resonantly weird image. I know nothing about the film. I think it was an English film, but I'm not sure. And the image I have is in mind when I'm trying to recall it is hardly even an image. It's more like just a suggestion of a kind of motion. Mm. And this feeling of vast, echoing, empty hallways that have been disused for countless eons you know, full of dusts and ghosts and the ghosts start to stir. That's the image. That's a, that's a powerful one. And it, it kind of relates directly to the content of the image discussed in Primal Screen episode one in the pilot where there, the uncanny quality of stop motion is um, something we could discuss because it's a little bit like the automaton coming to life. Yeah. Like you can tell it's fake. You can tell it's fake, but its fakeness makes it scarier. Yes. Not less scary. Yes. That's interesting. That's absolutely right. There's a scene in a movie that affected me very, very deeply. I was 11. I had several of these images uh, that I could talk about, but this this one relates closely to what you just described, I think, in a way. There's a, a Canadian horror film called Pin that, I don't know, I think I'm the only person who's seen this film. I know I'm not, but I feel like I am. 
it's a film about two kids, a brother and sister, who have a slightly like quasi incestuous relationship. It's weird. They're very close, and uh, their dad is a doctor, and their dad is very aloof, very cold. And in order to teach them about human anatomy, he uses this anatomically correct dummy that he calls Pin, and he uses ventriloquism so that Pin can tell his kids about the human body. <laughs> and uh, so it's like we're, we're already in weird terrain, but that's, but there's a scene in there where the boy is hiding in his dad's office and Hin is standing there or sitting, I can't remember, and a nurse walks in and then the nurse proceeds to have sex with the dummy. She uses the dummy as a sex toy because he's anatomically correct. And that scene absolutely disturbed me. Like I could not get over that. It, played back in my mind for and I was 11 so I was just at that moment of like sexual awakening it was just like the most traumatic way to be introduced to the idea of sexual desire to see this nurse uh having sex with this dummy which if I remember correctly was kind of a like a skinless kind of thing like you see the muscles and stuff um and uh that really freaked me out and again, there's something about seeing automatons come to life or seeing the inanimate become animate that is, I think, something we kind of all have to experience, all have to go through. So I, I think there's a kind of proof of concept in Asher's choice of topic for his pilot because he's talking about representations becoming their own thing. So a ventriloquist dummy is a puppet, but the puppet comes to life. And it's in the same way that The Shining is a movie, but the movie starts to think. Or the, the sleep paralysis is a dream, but the dream is an entity, right? Like there's something about what should not be acting, what should not be conscious, what shouldn't be alive suddenly becoming alive. Well, isn't that Freud's and, idea of the uncanny? Isn't that kind of the kernel of that idea? It's absolutely a kernel of, the, of his idea of the uncanny. And which he wrote at the same time as he was writing Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which I've just read. I think it's fantastic. I, I, I'm a huge, I'm realizing I'm a huge Freud fan, but I read Freud as a, as a weird fiction author, not as a psychologist. Like, as weird fiction, Freud is almost unbeatable. I think he belongs with the, the masters that Lovecraft lists, you know, of that period. Really? Like, well, there's something about that Austro-Hungarian Viennese scene that was... They really were close to the weird in in several ways. Like um, Arthur Schnitzler, who wrote who wrote the book that Eyes Wide Shut's based on, Freud, Benjamin. These guys were very close to some really, really cool kind of like weird uh, ideas about reality. Hmm. So Freud in the in the in the Uncanny, and um, if you take the Uncanny and you put it side by side with Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and you read them together, there's uh, there are some resonances there. And in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he develops the idea of the death drive. So the death drive is Freud's counterweight to eros or the um, the pleasure principle that he, for a large part of his career, thought was the only governing principle of the human psyche. But then there were a bunch of things he couldn't account for. For example, neurotic repetitive actions like schizophrenic patients who are constantly boring their fingers into their heads or children who repeat the same thing over and over and over again. He's like, pleasure is always about expanding on something or bringing something into being or bringing something new or sublimating something into something else. There's always, there, there isn't repetition in the pleasure principle. 
Uh, but in the death drive, he, he finds his answer to this other type of human behavior, which tries, it's not going for life, it's going for death. So basically, the, the death drive for Freud is the human subconscious desire to return to a steady state of inanimate matter. Every cell in our body is tending towards the inanimate, will one day become inanimate again. Humans are basically like finger puppets that rise out of the inanimate and become conscious. And they have this drive, this built-in drive to return to the inanimate, to return to absolute non-being. You know, now that you mention it, that's pretty Lovecraftian. It is. It is. That's how I read I it. I love it. I think it. you're selling me on this idea of Freud as a master of the weird. The reason I say I like him as a weird fiction author is because philosophically, my tendency would be to reverse almost everything he says. So, for instance, the uncanny for him is, and Lacan developed this, the uncanny effect for Freud comes when, one, one classic instance of it is when you see an inanimate object become animated. So a doll that's in your room during the day, it's pretty inoffensive, it's just there. But at night, the moonlight hits it and you look at it and it seems to look at you or it turns its head. And all of a sudden, what's going on to Freud, basically, is the reason that's scary for him is that it looks alive, yet you know it's not alive, so therefore you must not be alive either. That's the kind of Lacanian real, right? Oh, interesting. Like, like in, in Lacanian psychology, if you love something, it's out of narcissism. The thing is affirming your own autonomy as a subject, and you love it because it serves your, your narcissistic self-love, in a way, or, or your, your belief that you're this autonomous thing that, that is free to choose. Which, and by the way, the I'm just going to interrupt you for a second and say that it's, that's the kind of idea, like, that's really interesting. And I also, every cell of my body right now is screaming, that's bullshit! Like, I just so do not believe that either that or anything else Lacan ever said. To me, Lacan is the arch fraud of all arch frauds. Okay. I have the same instinct, and I, I've tried and failed to read him, so I'm sure a lot of Lacanians would take uh, issue with the way I'm describing it. This is the way I understood it. So for Lacan, if you let's say you love your wife. Well, you love her out of your own narcissistic ego. But then at night you see her and she suddenly, like in Lost Highway, David Lynch's film, your wife suddenly has the face of an old man in the dark and it scares the shit out of you. And what you realize then is that the object of your love, the reason you love something, the real force behind that love is always off screen. It's not something that's part of your conceptual apparatus. It's not something that's part of the, the terrain of the known. It's always outside of it. There's... There are deep, invisible, unconscious forces behind your desires. Therefore, the thing you love becomes alien to you in that moment as you're confronted with the real. And then you realize that you're just a puppet. So in both cases, in the Freud, Freud's interpretation of the uncanny and Lacan's interpretation of the uncanny, it's the same thing. There's a kind of like rational process going on in the mind of the person experiencing the uncanny. The doll comes to life. Well, the doll can't be alive. Therefore, I must be a doll. Do you understand the, the steps? Yeah, well, it's interesting, to, actually, that as an interpretation, as much as I think that Freud, um, or rather Lacan, is um, full of shit on a, almost a cosmic level. Nevertheless, that's a kind of a fun thing to play with, especially with respect to one particular scene or a moment towards the end of that episode of Primal Screen. One of the interview subjects is somebody who, from an early age, had a fear of automata, uh, apparently there's a word for it, automatonophobia. And 
his mom made very lifelike, high-quality, 19th-century-style dolls. Like the kind where you get real human hair and where, like, every fingernail, every eyelash, every little detail is carefully painted on by hand. And so he tells a story about how he's older, he comes back from college, and they put him up in the spare room. And his mom, by now, has turned her doll-making hobby into a profession, and she's selling these dolls online. And so he's put in a room where she's storing all of her dolls, and there's at least three dozen dolls all arrayed around him, and their little empty glass eyes all staring at him. And he talks about this as a moment of, like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, you have to really... Yeah face your fear and he talks about this as a moment where he realizes that he's changed in his attitude about automata because now automata have become an expression of his mother's love like his the same person who made him a like a toasted cheese sandwich when he was a kid who baked cookies for him or same mother who would drive him to school or whatever like these are acts of love and the dolls themselves are acts of love. It's her love for her craft. And basically when he's able to see the dolls as emanations from his mother's love and not these uncanny objects of dread, he's able to just roll over on his side and go to sleep and sleep, you know, sleep like a baby, like they didn't scare him anymore. I don't know yeah. if there's a, a Lacanian read of that. Um, it's a Pinocchio read. <laughs> Geppetto creates Pinocchio. And his love makes Pinocchio into a real puppet who has the potential of becoming a real boy. Like, I found that moment really interesting. He wasn't scared because he saw the, the, the puppets uh, or the dolls as emanations or as being loved. They were loved. Therefore, they can't be. Therefore, even if I'm a puppet, I'm a loved puppet. And so that's okay. You know, you could, you could explain it Lacanian. And Lacanian, Lacanian would come up with an interesting rep- response to it. Well, of course. But what I would. like to do. What I like to do is to reverse, invert Plato, uh, not Plato. <laughs> I do that too, but invert um, Freud. I've seen, okay, so my dad, when I was a kid, my dad put a, a clown poster in my room out of his infinite cruelty. Um, <laughs> so right Sorry, at the foot of my bed. I don't know why bed, I find that so funny. If I, if I raise my head, I was in a bunk bed, I was on the bottom bunk. And if I raised, if I opened my eyes and kind of looked down towards the foot of the bed, I would see on the wall in front of me this uh, life-size clown poster. It had a ruler on it to measure your height, you know, and the clown was like just like happily, grinningly holding this ruler. And um, during the day, I was like, okay, fine. But at night, that fucking clown was the scariest. And that clown would like laugh at me, point at me, uh, do all kinds of shit. Like it was crazy. And um, if I go back to the experience, if I'm going to take an Asher approach to this, Freud's explanation is a way to banish, and this is what Eric was saying too, and it, it, the uncanny in Freud's uh, formulation of it is a way to banish what is actually scary. Because what is actually scary, and I think everybody will agree if they're just being honest, what's scary about seeing an inanimate object come to life is seeing an inanimate object come to life. You don't know what it will do. You don't know what its intentions are. You could invert it to say that what's actually going on when you anthropomorphize an object, you give it a face, is you enable the object to assert some kind of consciousness that is inherent in all matter. Okay? And that's a big claim, I realize. But the idea is that what you're seeing when the clown comes to life on the poster or when the film starts to, the the film trailer speaks to you is that you're not so much 
realizing that you're inanimate, you're realizing that the world is animate, that meaning-making occurs everywhere, and therefore that you're confronted with consciousnesses whose intentions are unknown. What Freud dismisses as a kind of like magical thinking, superstitious mode of thought is in fact what asserts itself in those moments. And he would agree with that, but he just, without really making a case for it, he just dismisses that possibility. Um, and I understand it's a crazy possibility, but that is what the experience is. When you see a doll, it's not like, oh, I must be a doll too. That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, fuck, that doll's alive. That doll's going to do something. You know, it's mm-hmm. so that I think that approach, which Asher takes with sleep paralysis, he doesn't just like put it down to the phallus, you know, he he tries to just honor the phenomenon and lets it speak for itself and entertains the idea that these things might be if if they're not exactly what they seem you can only get to what they are by starting with what they seem like like that's a good starting point you don't dismiss the seeming in order to get to the thing you embrace the seeming and then you ask questions to get into it absolutely that to me is almost a kind of the fundamental cognitive move you have to make at the threshold of, well, for example, thinking about magic or thinking about the so-called paranormal, the, the problem, the thing that prevents you from talking intelligently about those things or even just talking about these things with enough sympathy or enough charity that you have something to say about them other than it's all bullshit or I'm sure we can explain it away. Uh... The threshold move you have to make is to partition off the phenomenological experience, the the individual's experience of an event from explanations that stand over the event. You might eventually get to explanations that stand over the experienced event, but you don't lead with those because if you do, you're discounting everything that's abnormal. So there's an occultist named Duncan Barford who wrote a really good, slim volume of essays called Occult Experiments in the Home. And in one of them, he says something to the effect that I can experience seeing a ghost, but I can't experience seeming to see a ghost. Right? Mm. And the standard issue materialist sort of way to deal with, or I shouldn't say materialist, but just the standard issue, rationalist rationalist way of dealing with ghost stories, ghost sightings, is to say, well, you thought you saw a ghost. It seemed to you that you saw a ghost, but it was really, I don't know, a draft causing the curtains to move or the house settling, causing the floorboards to creak or whatever. But Barford's point, and it's not original to him, but I just, I'm quoting him, is I can experience the floorboards creaking and I can experience the curtains swaying and apparently on their own, but I can't experience seeming to experience these things. I only experience the things. What you make of it later after the experience is over is another matter. But unless you're able to kind of abide with the subject on the level of experience, you're really not going to have anything to say about any of this stuff. Not anything interesting anyway. The, the, the seeming has its own being, you know, strangely. And in fact, maybe all being is a kind of seeming because you can never get to being itself. It's like what Heidegger says. You only get beings. 
beings are seemings of being, you know, <laughs> and you and, and you have to honor the seeming as a thing. Like it's it reminds me of that thing that I put on my blog a few years ago, which we talked about about the cat. Right. Like that old cartoon cliche. You're walking down an alleyway. It's kind of an Asher little vignette here. Um, you're yeah, walking I down imagine an alleyway. how he might direct it. Right. Uh, you're walking down this dark alley and there's light at the end of the alley. There's a corner and then you see this shadow and the shadow looks like this tall demonic shape that's coming around the corner. And finally, whatever is casting the shadow comes around the corner and it's a little cat. So the question is, well, when do you experience the real, not reality, not, not facts, but the, the true nature of being? Well, my argument would be that the moment you experience it, is when you see the shadow of the demon. When you see, when you don't know what you're looking at, you are closest to the nature of reality, because you're uh, acceding to what Hillman describes as essential for working with what is unknown, and that's an attitude of unknowing. An attitude of unknowing is an attitude that is open to something new, to peeling back layers of seeming to get to deeper layers of seeming. There's uh, when he says here in that quote that I read earlier, the dark eye that makes our brightness unsure. This to me refers to or uh, makes me think of an idea that I've brought up before, which is that rationality, the kind of causal rationality or rational causality that we assume is always going to be the case is actually grounded in a deeper chaos that is non-causal. Like that the what I call the imaginal is this almost kind of underworld which supports causality. And I was I was reading up on the Egyptian myths yesterday and I was reading about the myth of Re, the, the sun god. And the, the Egyptians thought that the sun god would rise in the morning, go across the sky and then descend into the underworld at dusk. And when it des- when Re descended into the underworld, he had to fight a serpent called Apophis under the earth. And only if he was victorious would the sun rise again. So the priests would perform rituals to help Ray defeat the serpent so that the sun would rise again. This, to me, is a profound insight into the nature of reality, or at least into, into a viable, at least epistemological uh, or pragmatic model for approaching reality. And that is that nothing that was the case will necessarily be the case still. That everything is grounded in a deeper, much more mysterious source that our phenomenal, causal, sensible, slight, slash intelligible world is grounded in a more imaginal, stranger, more mysterious, more magical underworld. We, you can't just navigate our world without taking account of that deeper level. you're talking about the fear or at least on uneasiness anxiety that comes from that moment where the universe seems to be alive where you're looking out at what up until then you've been pleased to imagine is a a world of inert matter that exists for you to walk around in and maybe make use of and you look upon that and then you find that it is looking back at you that is a deeply unsettling moment and there's a figure in The Nightmare, which is Ash's film from, I think, 2015, 
where I can't remember if this is something that one of his interview subjects says, but it's the title of one of the segments. So this is something that Asher seems to enjoy doing is dividing his film up into segments, each announced with like a little title card. And one of those segments is titled The Darkness Comes Alive or something like that. That's a certain, how to put this, in sleep paralysis, there is a certain kind of things coming alive in perhaps unwanted ways that impresses itself on you. So I have a experience with sleep paralysis that allowed me to watch the nightmare and find it very particularly scary uh, because it kind of spoke to me. I've had sleep paralysis a few times and then on at least one occasion it was so benign that I was able to be like, oh, sleep paralysis, just wait until this wears off. I'd fallen asleep on the couch and woken up and I just couldn't move. And I was just like, oh, I know what this is. And I just waited for it to go away and then I could get up and move around. But the scariest experience I had, I didn't realize until years later that it was sleep paralysis. So it was when my kids were smaller, I woke up and I looked at the clock and it said three in the morning. And I was like, oh God, it's too early for me to get up. So I'm just going to lie here in bed. And then I noticed that, you know, my door is ajar and my kids have their rooms right across the hallway from our bedroom. And we always kept the hallway light on because the kids like to have some kind of light on. They would have their door ajar so that the light from the hallway would get in. And if the light burned out, then they would, you know, they didn't like that. It would be scary. And I'd noticed that the light had burned out and I'm beginning to hear Alice, my daughter, fussing a little bit about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got to get up. And I, at least I should probably change that light bulb. So I get up out of bed and I walk over towards the door and all of this is just reality this is not a dream there's nothing dreamlike about this and as I'm reaching the door like almost like reaching my hand out to open the door wider so I can go out into the hallway this enormously powerful force just titanically strong comes up behind me I don't see it but it grabs my wrists and pinions them behind my back and lifts me up bodily like as easily as if I were just a sack of feathers. Hmm. And I see the whole, my perspective of the room lurches kind of sideways and up and my face passes within about six inches of the ceiling of my room and I am hurled backwards with tremendous force onto the bed. And I hit the bed and at the precise moment I hit the bed, I snap awake. And it's the same time that it was on the clock as when I looked at it. And everything is exactly as it was in this dream. Quote, unquote. Quote, unquote, dream. As I recall, the light in the hallway was not burned out. Right? That was not true. The darkness comes but I am alive. Exa exactly. I am in exactly the same position in bed that I was in my dream, like where this unseen presence hurled me into my bed, like at that precise moment I come to and I'm in exactly the same position. Like what I'm trying to say is it's sort of like that story I had about the witch, uh, seeing a witch mm -hmm. when I was like super hyper overtired when I was 19 years old. 
it's the same thing that it doesn't work like a dream where there's this discontinuity. There is a compl almost perfect continuity between waking, true waking experience and the sleep paralysis experience. I woke up and I, I uh, or I quote unquote woke up. I at any rate came to the consensus reality where there's no monster in my room and all the hair, I remember feeling all the hairs on my body standing up on end. It was just the creepiest, weirdest feeling. And then the sequel to that is that when she woke up, I told my wife about this and she was sort of disturbed because she had just had a very vivid and frightening dream about an intruder in our house. And she said, I haven't had a dream like that in a long time, but she had had a dream that there was some malevolent presence in our house. Weird, huh? Very weird. But what do you do with that? I mean, what can you do? What is the sane thing to do with those memories and that corroboration from your wife? Is it truly sane to dismiss it as a, just a, a, like a weird coincidence? She dreamt there was an intruder. I dreamt that I was grabbed by this giant and thrown on the bed. It was the same time on the clock as it was for real. Like, like do you take this kind of pseudo-Freudian, uh, rationalist, arrogant, hubristic denial of the experience as such and just kind of like throw it into the garbage? Or do you just allow it? I mean, what, what is so threatening about it? Well, actually, a lot is threatening. I can tell you what's what so <laughs> I mean, shit, because yeah. if that is, okay, so like, what is a, if, if we aren't going to be rationalists about this and try and explain it away, and just, I mean, the, it's very easy to explain away. You can say, well, it's just a coincidence. People have dreams about intruders in their house all the time. And maybe your wife hadn't had one in a while, but she had one that night, and that just so happens that's the same night that you had this episode of sleep paralysis. Well, that's their answer to everything, right? It's a, it's neither confirmable nor falsifiable. Exactly the kind of answer to everything that rationalists usually dislike, except, you know, when they do it, it's cute, right? Right. Um, if you leave aside that kind of rationalist frame, then the obvious interpretation is, well, there is some presence, perhaps an incorporeal presence, a demon, if you like, that attacked you. And that haunted your wife's dreams. Um, and that's a scary, scary thought. Because living in a world where demons exist is much scarier than living in a world where they don't. Right. I mean, I know what if there was a guy, like a human being in my house, that would be scary as shit. But like... A human being who could lift you up like that, especially, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a human being, you kind of know the range of things that you do with human beings, right? You can run away from human beings. You can call the cops on a human being. You can grab your baseball bat and, and cudgel a human being around the head and neck area. But a demon? What the fuck do you do with a demon? Yeah, this reminds me of um, something you tweeted, you shared on Twitter through our uh, Weird Studies account recently about the renewed interest in UFO phenomena and how it seems like the New York Times now and all these mainstream outlets are taking UFO disclosure very seriously, strangely enough, and um, are reporting on very respectable people in high positions in government talking about the UFO phenomenon like it's something we actually have to deal with. And, you know, I remember mentioning this to someone years ago when I was into the, the whole disclosure thing, and the person said, if it was real, we would know. There would be evidence. 
It's like people well, always say that kind of shit. It's like there is think, evidence. You just ignore yeah, it, asshole. But all we have is evidence. Like we didn't just make this up. And then you know, like, <laughs> people are seeing these things. Pilots are seeing these things. Something is going on. And yeah, we can't draw conclusions. Even if you say it was a demon, there's a way I would say, yeah, but we don't know what demons are. So it's a, it's so a sufficiently, sure. yeah. it's a sufficiently vague or sufficiently fluid concept, the concept of demon to be a useful parapsychological term to use. Yeah. At least it's honoring the phenomenon as something. I mean, what yeah. you experienced was something with intention and something with some kind of, some form of consciousness that was acting. So if we want to call that demons, yeah, that doesn't mean we can claim to know what demons are, but at least it's a step towards honoring the phenomenon and acting from a place of unknowing, which is the actual place we're in. Like, we never have enough information to draw conclusions about the possible. Like, the possible is always open. You, you never get enough data to decide on what, it, what could or couldn't happen. It's like with UFOs, like what are the odds there's life on other planets? Well, we don't know because we only have one example. Like, yeah. The odds might be really high or really low. Worth we don't noting, know, too, actually. that as much as people who are, I like to think of it as cognitively modern, people who knowingly or unknowingly, almost always unknowingly, subscribe to the tenets of a kind of modern worldview, a, a modernist worldview. I actually wrote about this in the the blog post I wrote kind of announcing the birth of weird studies where I have like 12 things that are unspoken axioms of how we think the universe works. And one of them is mm. uh, whatever is most the most depressing explanation of something is probably correct. That's like an assumption we have, which I'm this sort of half tongue in cheek saying that, but it's just sort of like the modern style of thinking moves by limiting meaning at every point yeah limiting possibility and one of the most powerful rhetorical moves you can make within that style of thought is anybody who is asserting something above the minimum you can always say well it must be very nice for you to think that how very comforting it must be for you to imagine that i always feel like saying that to rationalists these days when they're when they start talking about how incorporeal intelligences or ufos or whatever how those things can't possibly exist i always like to say well that must be very comforting for you to believe because you know then the world would actually be a much safer and much more easily navigable place but one of the axioms of the modern is this idea of like a kind of um epistemic minimalism I guess you could say that Occam's razor is a version of this, right? Don't do not mm -hmm. uh, multiply. Um, what's what? What is the actual thing that William of Occam said? Uh, he said, um, "Don't turn the universe into a Rube Goldberg device." That's exactly <laughs> what he said. <laughs> uh, I can't yeah. remember the way he phrased it. I, I, Multi something about mul something about multiplying entities or multiplying. Agent. So, like, if you're trying to yeah. understand why something happens, you don't need to invoke, like, the Illuminati and the Rand Corporation, all these entities that you believe are responsible for the fact that your toaster doesn't work or whatever. Right. The simpler explanation is that there's something defective about your toaster. Anyway, this works as a pretty good rule of thumb for a lot of situations in life, but you can see the way when it becomes like just a standard 
epistemic position, you can see the ways that it's very often wrong, or it will lead you astray as often as this principle of parsimony will lead you astray as often as it will lead you in the right direction. And one great example is the idea of life on other planets. I remember that Carl Sagan back in the day did some probabilistic math where he figured out like the likelihood of there being other civilizations of approximately equivalent technical development as ours. I might be doing him an injustice, but my memory is that he figured in any given galaxy, there could be maybe five or six, but that the number would be very low. And that, that, idea or that hypothesis was informed by the assumption that life is rare and the conditions of life have to be just so for it to happen. Except now people are realizing that that just isn't so. Number one, we're finding what are called extremophiles, organisms that exist in highly... uh, Precarious. Yeah, precarious environments like tube worms that live at the lip of volcanic vents at the bottom of the ocean where it's, you know, boiling temperatures, hot enough to melt lead, and yet these things can live there. Um, So life is a lot more durable and a lot more able to kind of get in in a variety of situations. But the the other side of that is now that we have the technical means to actually detect planets orbiting around other stars, we're realizing that rocky planets are just really common like there's so many of them we've discovered so many of them and even thinking about planets that exoplanets that exist in the habitable zone what people call the goldilocks zone it's not too hot it's not too cold there's like tons of them they found some star system that has something like five planets and all of them are in that goldilocks zone so suddenly you realize like this assumption of parsimony that for years for decades the scientific assumption was that life must be extremely rare that it, that aliens are very unlikely because you can figure it out that life must be exceedingly rare and now it's beginning to realize like oh there are so many opportunities for life in this universe that it's almost certainly wrong that parsimonious yeah, because... interpretation but the parsimonious interpretation is always the place you're going to start with And it's always going to be very difficult to dislodge because we have this overwhelming emotional assumption that parsimony is more likely. And if that's depressing, if the idea that you're, well, you're limiting the possible meaning that the universe has for you, there's a certain kind of person who does find that really comforting because more meaning is scary. Well, it it performs that parlor trick that I've mentioned with regards to... um... The, the, the great irony of modernity, which is that humans assert their meaninglessness, but by being the one who can assert meaning and meaninglessness, they put themselves again into the center of the universe. It's comforting because we're the ones who get to decide what's real and what's not. So we remain firmly at the center, even while we say that we're insignificant you know, dust mites in the great void. Right. Like, how, the, but how the, significant must you be being able to say that? I think that Occam's razor, the mistake is when it moves from being an epistemological tool to an ontological tool. Oh, that's a good way <laughs> like, of putting it. When it, 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 like, it's a good razor for shaving your own face, but you don't, you can't just cut up the whole world with this razor because you don't have enough information. So it's like uh, one of the one of the worst things anyone's ever said was Einstein when he said, "God does not play dice with the universe." Well, how the fuck do you know? And secondly, (laughs) 
Secondly, isn't that precisely what God does on some level? You know, Heraclitus would counter with, you know, he says God is a child playing with marbles. So you have two different takes on, on the world. And again, it goes back to Einstein, who asserts the absolute authority of reason over all possibility, that the universe is essentially a rational construct for reasons that are completely unexplainable. Or Heraclitus' statement that reason, logos, floats on a sea. It's something that is that is affirmed through the universe. It's not the foundation of the universe. The laws of probability can't pre-exist physical laws. Probability always presupposes physical laws that set the parameters of, of the probable, right? Like, so once you step outside that rational scaffolding, there needs to be something producing the conditions for probability to come into being. And that force, that creative force, that thing, that event, which brings about the possibility of probability, okay, cannot in itself be assessed under probabilistic terms. It has to be something that lies outside of any type of rational framework, which like you can explain how things come about because of physical laws, but you can't explain the emergence of physical laws physically, obviously, you know. So you always end up confronting this unknowable thing at the root at the at the at the root of the universe at the source of things. A reason can't take you all the way down. You were saying that basically rationalism is comforting. I think it is, but in a way, you could also argue that it's not because it tells us that we have no in- inherent meaning. There's no point to anything. That uh, well, everything, everything has a co- boils- everything comes with a cost, right? Yeah. You know, the cost of living in an enchanted universe is that you live in a much more precarious place. If there are entities, ghosts, demons, dryads, kobolds, whatever, that are fucking with you, then you have to go to a witch or a wizard or you have to go to somebody who can who knows how to deal with those entities or you have to figure out how to do it yourself. So, like, if I am convinced that the thing that happened to me in sleep paralysis was a demon then I have to banish or I have to figure out, I have to do something that's spiritually efficacious. Well, that's a cost that I'm bearing for living in an enchanted universe. Charles Taylor calls that being in a, a porous condition and being porous to the universe. That when you're porous to the universe, when yourself is easily penetrated by the outside, where you don't have as firm a boundary to your subjecthood, you're much more vulnerable. And his argument is that uh, basically the entire, you know, six or 700 years, I mean, he, he, he is narrating modernity along a very long timeline. And he's saying that one of the absolutely fundamental things that happens, maybe the fundamental thing that happens in the centuries-long process of secularization is the creation of what he calls the buffered self, which is where you eliminate that porosity. You are no longer porous to the universe. You're buffered from it. So you're no longer prey to, you know, unseen intelligent forces. But then the problem is that then you are living in a universe that you have evacuated of intelligence. The only intelligences that count, quote unquote, are human intelligences, your intelligence and other people's. And if you push it far enough, you're not even so sure about other people's intelligences, right? There's a solipsism that this leads to. The solipsism is the starting point for this type of thinking. Descartes had to go through solipsism in order to get to that. So there's always an implicit solipsism in this theory of the universe. Because you derive the reality of other people's 
having intelligence from the fact that you have intelligence and on the basis of their behavior and its similarity to your own behavior, then you derive that they have intelligence. You can't get to an immediate, you know, because That's the right. minute you've reduced consciousness to subjective consciousness, well, you only know your own and then you, you bestow it upon others. Yeah. Rationally. So solipsism is the root of it, not the, fi- the final consequence. Yeah, that's interesting. It. So it haunts it constantly. Like modern thinking is constantly haunted by solipsism. And you see it bloom into this horrible, monstrous flower in idealist uh, philosophy, which is basically just you go to solipsism and then you say that your solipsism is actually universal consciousness. So then you, the whole universe starts to exist inside you. That that is the ultimate modern move. So idealism has been has been framed as a way to get back to an enchanted universe, but in fact it's not. It's the consummation of modern thinking. It's the consummation of the buffered self. Uh, the buffered self eats, devours the entire universe, and the entire universe then you know becomes like starts to look like something like Ken Wilber's head But like uh, I wanted to get back because Kubrick uh, had a so somebody I don't remember who it was but who had a conversation with Kubrick while he was preparing The Shining, and Kubrick asked this person, "Do you believe in ghosts?" And the person said, uh, "I don't know, I don't know." And Kubrick said, "Well, you know, he's like I think my 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 ghost film will be the most optimistic film of my career." And he's like, "Really? Isn't it like this horrible horror film?" He's like, "Yeah, but any belief in ghosts is optimistic." Because it opens up the possibility of an Well, that's afterlife. something that somebody says in Room 237. Exactly that idea that actually there's something very optimistic about The Shining. Because asserting that there is something beyond what is, you know, whatever is available to a purely rational mind is actually, that's good news. Even if that thing is, you know, the ghost of Delbert Grady telling Jack Torrance to murder his family. The very fact that something like the ghost of Grady can exist is itself good news. Of course, it's something of a good news, bad news situation. Yeah, certainly, and, and, certainly and the, for bad news for the Torrance family. But the idea for the of the Shining itself, like what the Shining is, this power that some people have of seeing the future and the past, of of seeing through the blind chain of causes in order to see like the events at work behind them in order to see where things are going in order to see where things come from that in itself is pretty optimistic too like Danny as the hero of the film well, some of the people in room 237 think Danny is the villain but if you just take it at face value uh, Danny as the the hero who works his way through the maze who is able to see through the sins of the father and kind of create a, a new mode of being that would transcend the mistakes of the past, which Jack Torrance repeats. That in itself is very optimistic too. And it's one of his, the film has a really a happy ending. They, that's they, true. They, they get away. Yeah. They get away and Jack gets his comeuppance, you know? Oh. Um, hey, it ends, so, up, it ends up okay for Jack. He gets to live at the overlook forever, which is what right. he says he wants, right? He's, he's locked yeah. in some kind of weird time loop where he's stuck forever in 1921 and, so it worked out okay for him. It's a happy ending. It is. It is. <laughs> um, I think that ultimately I, I see Room 237 as a statement about art. But he chose his film very well. I think that there's something about The Shining that uh, it, it is a very crystalline 
work of art. It's like, it's one of those films that basically just trusts its viewer implicitly to figure it out. And I, I, that's one of the things I really love about Stanley Kubrick is that very few filmmakers have had as much respect for their viewers as he has. He just basically made the films and let you figure them out in the most sympathetic way. And uh, all, all of his hiding little Easter eggs all over the film. This is all, this is like, man, people have seen him as this kind of aloof uh, egomaniac. But God, look at how much fucking work he put into just enriching your experience here. Like, it's crazy. And that, that a proper response to a film like The Shining is a kind of obsession. Because it takes a Kubrickian obsession to watch Kubrick and see something. To see more than just your own face reflected back to you. There's a moment where Bill Blakemore, the my favorite of the critics who speak in the uh, in the film, he says basically that the work of art is like a, a pure symbol that contains everything. The whole universe is contained in it, and it's like a, a crystal for observing the psyche as such, or a human history, or whatever. And that The Shining is actually a film about pastness and about how the past is present virtually in a truly weird way. I think that that idea that the past is present, that the past isn't done with us yet, is something that recurs in all of Asher's Mm. films. Because he's always trying to bring experiences back into the light of the present. So he's, he's always looking at how something from someone's past affected them, affects them in the present. Like in The Nightmare, in all of these films, there's, there's a there's, he calls them subjective documentaries. So they're, they're documentaries about deep subjective experiences, which are experiences that, that are past. And he's looking for the kind of shard of reality that, that is contained in these incidences that he explores. Isn't that basically what psychoanalysis is? I think, yeah, I think James Hillman, I would love to have been, to have been one of his patients because I think... I don't know, but in Dream in the Underworld, he really makes a case for not bringing any type of theor- theoretical instrumentation into the uh, the room where the analysis takes place, to just let dreams speak in their own language to you. And I think that Asher, in that sense, is very psychoanalytic, yeah, for sure. Even if his subjects are not. I mean, his subjects are very concerned to say, this is what this film means. Uh, and they're all very, yeah. and they're all very clear. Not you know, you're not hearing a lot of postmodern relativism among his interviewees. They firmly believe that they have found the meaning of The Shining, a coded meaning. Um, I don't get the impression that Asher is uh, as dug in. The, I think again, why I think that he is a, a filmmaker of the weird is because he's able to just kind of hang out in the experiences that are being related to him. And he's not trying to import any kind of explanatory mechanism. No, he's not. But I think he's doing this in order to show the objective power of of the phenomena that he chooses to, to look at. In other words, I have no doubt that Asher sees some kind of reality at work in sleep paralysis. Like he's not, I don't think he's just kind of like looking at at his subjects as curiosities or strange freaks who are obsessed. He's not, no, he's, these aren't not. studies. Yeah. Yeah. He's bringing together different people who've had this weird experience, but they have this weird experience in common. That to me implies a, a certain amount of, um, 
uh, validation of the of the of the object that's being observed. So I'm pretty sure Asher's a big Kubrick fan, and also that he takes sleep paralysis seriously enough to make a film about it that doesn't try to dismiss it. At the same time, that's you're right. What he's interested in is the multifarious nature of interpretation and the mysterious nature of reality. enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>